You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Well, welcome everyone to season three, episode seven of the Together in Literacy podcast. I am here with the outstanding Casey Harrison. Hi, Casey. Hi, Emily. And we have just a wonderful topic today that I think is going to be so practical and so helpful and something that really is going to get you reflecting on your own teaching practices. So we are going to get into those strategies with you in a little while. uh, And hopefully you'll be able to gather some tips from what we're discussing today and have and open up these conversations with your other work colleagues or in your tutoring center Really, even if if you're a parent or a caregiver, maybe open up the conversation with the classroom teacher to see uh, if these are some things that are happening in the classroom with your own children. Okay, so before we kick off that amazing topic that we have for you today, let's share some feedback. We love hearing from our listeners, and it just really is so lovely to read the feedback that people send us. And this one is from Kara Shepard, and it's called My Go-To for Encouragement. Together in Literacy is an invaluable resource for me as a private tutor and as a parent of students with dyslexia. Emily and Casey's holistic approach is so refreshing. Their passion for spreading awareness as well as skills and resources to share with students and families makes this podcast my favorite to share and revisit. Well, Kara, we just loved, loved reading your feedback. And I always just marvel at the people who work with children who uh, with dyslexia, maybe in the private setting, maybe not, who are also parents of children with dyslexia. And that just shows your commitment and your devotion to this incredible field of study in education and these learning differences. And we so appreciate the work that you do, Kara, every day to help your own students and your own children. And of course, reaching out to us. So if you are loving the Together in Literacy podcast, please leave us a rating, leave us some feedback, share an episode with uh, a work colleague, maybe school admin looking to dig into the science of reading, right? Makes a lovely suggestion if your school or school district is looking to make that shift. And you can see everything we have to offer, episodes and blog posts on togetherinliteracy.com. 
All right. We're ready to dig into episode seven today. And today we are going to be discussing two different aspects that are going to be really important and to be connected to one another. It's called the importance of scaffolding in decoding. But what we want to emphasize, not just how to use scaffolds when we help our kids decode, but also the importance of using diagnostic and prescriptive teaching measures when we are applying the appropriate scaffolds. So what does that look like? And as you, as we get into this episode right now, sort of think about that. How are you using diagnostic and prescriptive teaching measures? Is this something that you are um, aware of or just beginning to become more aware of? This is a very important principle for Casey and I as uh, Orton-Gillingham educators. It's one of the major principles in the approach. And we have discussed it quite a bit in a few other episodes. We'll bring that up later in this episode so you can reference back to those and listen to them. But when we talk about children struggling with decoding, and Casey and I are intimately aware of that with our wonderful students that we work with. We have children who do struggle in this area, but you may have students who struggle with blending words or overemphasizing maybe a strategy of letter by letter decoding or students who may, you know, may segment, pull apart individual sounds and words. But when it comes to blending them all together to read, maybe that they haven't quite crossed that bridge yet. Mm -hmm. So what can we do to help them move forward? Now, we know that not only for maybe the educator, but also for the student, it can feel frustrating when we're stuck in this isolated sound by sound, letter by letter phase. Mm -hmm. Okay. When they're trying to pull that all together, right? Become much more blended work our way towards becoming fluent readers. We know that our, the children that we work with, the students we work with, uh, with dyslexia, they're learning to read. They need more instructional time, right? They need the gift of time. They need additional practice, further repetitions um, to address decoding and spelling and help them reach that application. But we know that there's this time period when students are stuck in that letter by letter phase of decoding, early decoding. So we want to talk about some of the scaffolds that we can provide them as we move them into more fluid reading. Now we're going to get into some very specific things that you can do, not only this is why I like this episode, not only at the early level, because you may be thinking like, yeah, I've talked about the, you know, I know about decoding, scaffolds and things like that. But you may only be aware of the ones that are helping kids at an early reader phase. We're going to go into ones for your older students or as your students are ready to handle multisyllabic words. Okay, so we'll have a sort of a, a second part to this. All right, Casey <laughs> is going to discuss what 
our scaffold when we're talking about literacy instruction. Yeah. And I'm so excited to have this be one of our topics for today, because I think scaffolding, it really is an integral part of working with our learners, especially students with dyslexia. It's talking really about that instructional framework in which learning is broken into smaller chunks, providing a new tool, structure, or a strategy to help students grasp new materials or concepts so that they can tackle increasingly more complex skills or materials. Really simply put, it these are supposed to be in temporary instructional tools or strategies to help our learners grow. And so for us, what we really have to be mindful of when we're planning or when we're implementing these scaffolds within our instructional lessons, we have to really reflect and determine the use of that scaffolding within our instruction. So some of the questions that we can ask ourselves is, you know, is the scaffold needed to accomplish the task? And if not, then we don't need to use it. But if so, we need to be really mindful in what we're choosing as our scaffold. What scaffold does the student need? And then when should that scaffold be removed? So just as a painter's scaffold is put up temporary, it's not pretty, it's just something that is used as a tool, we want to be mindful of that and remove those scaffolds. Oftentimes I see scaffolds being held onto for much too long in lessons. And we want to really make sure we're being very mindful of that gradual release of responsibility. And Emily and I had a whole episode on the gradual release of responsibility. Yes. (laughs) Season one, episode 10, but really, you know, thinking about scaffolds just as they're really unique to the learner and that we have to be really mindful of, yes, that gradual release of responsibility when it comes to the scaffolding And we also want to be aware that those scaffolds should be a part of our teaching and learning in our classrooms without the over scaffolding. And I really feel like that is the art of teaching. And that is especially the art of teaching students with dyslexia, knowing what scaffolds to use and when to release them and how to really help moving that learning forward. Yeah, you know what? I I was thinking just of a perfect example. For instance, when we help children with coding words and and teaching them the diacritical marks to to mark on them, that's a scaffold. We don't always have them mark every single word. What we do is calling attention to those particular orthographic features of the word. And there is a time where when you get into actually reading words, maybe that are multisyllabic, that we want them to have crossed that bridge so metacognitively they are looking at those particular syllable types in their mind or morphemes if they're breaking the word down by morpheme and able to look at the then so that that scaffold you can sort of give them maybe as a reminder remember when we were marking the words down and using those marks now Try to imagine doing that in your mind and do it that. And it's pretty incredible to watch a child cross that bridge into that when they no longer have to be coding any longer. And so people wonder why 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 do you have why do we have kids do that? It's a scaffold. It really is. I love that connection, Emily. And you're so true, right? It is something that they've learned. And then really thinking also almost about 
it as a tool. It's something that they yeah. have in their back pocket and they can pull out when they need to as a scaffold if it's necessary and then then take it down. So that all really kind of brings us back to, as Emily had stated earlier, one of our key components in Orton-Gillingham structured literacy is being diagnostic and prescriptive. And that really brings us back to knowing our students' learning profile. We really want to know, you know, our students' academic and individual strengths and their needs. And those can be, we can look at the diagnosis that's formal, but we can also really use our informal observations, our classroom observations of our students to help with determining what is needed. And we have a great episode with Katie Vassar talking all about the learner's profile. And that's in season two, episode 14. So you may want to give that one a listen, but we really dig into looking at the learner's profile, both the strengths and areas of need. Yes. I loved that episode. Katie really, I think just highlighted the importance of knowing your student's learning profile, taking the time to actually dig into it. And that, because that is going to be the driver for the particular instructional practices that you'll want to use and emphasizes the phrase that we always use. It depends, right? (laughs) Okay. And, you know, we're looking, thinking about diagnostic and prescriptive teaching. This is a research-based principle. And so looked at, uh, is stated in 2007 by Reynolds and Fletcher Jansen. Just want to read a little quote from them about diagnostic and prescriptive teaching. Although any educational plan for an individual learner should spring from assessment, diagnostic and prescriptive teaching has more specific meaning. The key ideas underlying diagnostic and prescriptive prescriptive teaching is that a given diagnostic pattern is linked differently to a specific instructional strategy. And that is what Casey and I are saying when we're talking about it depends that sure, you may be trained in using one particular instructional strategy, but when we're talking about children, especially those with learning differences, that one particular instructional strategy may be trained in may not be working for that student. And so it's important to have more than one (laughs) strategy in your own toolbox. So if one isn't working, you're going to try something else based on what that learning profile may be telling you. And we'll get into an example of that in a little bit. Further, we have from Louisa Motes back in 2008, the diagnostic and prescriptive approach to teaching is a never-ending cycle. Progress monitoring and using a diagnostic and prescriptive approach help us close the reading gaps and push learning forward. And in her book, Basic Facts About Dyslexia and Other Reading Problems, what the teacher emphasizes, where the teacher gives extra help and how fast the teacher proceeds with small groups with are determined by the results of progress monitoring. So yes, I think both quotes are saying that progress monitoring is important, assessment is important, all of that, but there is diagnostic and prescriptive teaching method that is happening within the, uh, sometimes with right in within the confines of that lesson where decisions have to be made. 
So yeah, Emily, you're exactly right that the diagnostic and prescriptive approach to teaching really is that never ending cycle. And we can think of that as like a flow. So if we're identifying a student's academic and individual strengths and areas of need, then what we're going to do is use that information to prescribe appropriate courses of action to address those needs. And that can be based on observations and assessments from the teacher. Then we're going to be conducting, as you had said, that ongoing progress monitoring and then continuing with that flow, right? So it's, again, within that gradual release of responsibility and being truly diagnostic and prescriptive. Mm -hmm, absolutely. You know, and if people need just a quick refresher on diagnostic and prescriptive teaching, I do have a video on that on my YouTube channel for Ooh. the Literacy Nest if people want to just have a very short little explanation of what it means to be um, diagnostic and prescriptive. I love that. We're going to link that in the notes. Yeah. Oh, good. Thanks, Casey. <laughs> I got my voice YouTube channel. Okay. <laughs> So, you know, we've kind of talked a little bit here about the importance of scaffolds, that they're an integral part of our work with our students and being really diagnostic and prescriptive and to really determine what scaffolds are needed within our lessons. And so we're really going to hone in today just on scaffolds within decoding strategies. And so we have talked about the phonological component of language is often a challenge for many of our dyslexic learners. Many of the students that Emily and I work with, they really struggle to hold sounds in their phonological memory. And so while they may be able to segment those phonemes or those sounds in the words correctly, when asked to then blend them back together, they might omit sounds or change sounds. I don't know. Do you have that happen when your students, Emily? Oh, absolutely. Yes. You know what? Another thing you may be noticing, and this may be because there may be a disconnect with what is being taught as a decoding strategy within the classroom versus at home. I'm sorry, within the intervention setting, not at home, is what I noticed with some of these earlier students is they still will revert to just looking at that first letter and then guessing the rest of the word. And so that is something that we need to really get rid of, right? Yes. But we need to replace it. We need to replace it with a more effective method of decoding. Absolutely. So yeah. Yeah. And so when we're, we're noticing these things, we're making those observations, yeah. that is a really great time for us to know or to think about what scaffolds we need to implement with our students. But this is where that art of teaching comes in and that art of knowing at more than one strategy, right? We need to know when to pull in a strategy, where it should go within our lesson, which one to use to help our students be able to, to move their learning forward. And so those careful observations of our students can really help determine the when and where to implement scaffolding techniques. But we also, as Emily had said earlier, we really want to have more than one strategy to offer to our students because we know that not everything works for every student. It's one of the reasons why Emily and I are always saying, well, it depends because it really does. It depends on the child sitting in front of you. Yeah. So, to have different scaffolds, and let's talk first about early scaffolding for decoding. So if we have students that are really at the early stages of their reading development and they're having a hard time blending words, there are a couple different, there's actually five different scaffoldings that we can put into place to help them that we're going to talk about today. And so we're going to talk about segmenting, 
successive blending, continuous blending, body coda blending, and then backward blending. So some of those may be familiar to you. Some of them may not, but we're just going to kind of dig into, into these. So the first one, right, we want to talk about segmenting, right? We know that it is essential for our students to correctly identify those individual phonemes, those sounds in our words. And before students are fluent in blending or decoding, we really have to determine if they can orally say each phoneme and then blend the sounds to say a word. Often I'll do this without the letters first to just determine is oral blending and segmenting something that they are able to do. This often is a breakdown for our students um, and that would fall under that phonological awareness skill. Yes, we know research tells us to connect two letters as soon as we can, but you may need to scaffold back and you may need to go to this sort of task without the letters first. Right. Students are having a hard time with oral blending and segmenting. Yeah, Casey, I think you make a really good point there. The children that we're working with, yes, you may have to just start with a manipulative, something that's color-coded, something that's really tangible for them to just really pay attention, I think, and really work on listening and developing that metacognition, too. It's such a metacognitive task that we're asking to do. So, yes, um, I agree with you. Sorry to interrupt. No, did not interrupt at all. I love it. Adding because that oral blending task, sometimes that is really challenging for our students. And it really will allow us to be diagnostic and prescriptive because I can ask myself, hmm, are they able to orally segment and blend? Or is it only when the task of connecting to reading or spelling that they're omitting those sounds? It's going to help me really hone in my lesson. We know that typically for students, especially those with dyslexia, as Emily said, right, segmenting phonemes can really tax that phonological memory as it's going to require students to hold two, three, four or more phonemes in their phonological memory. Mm -hmm. As Emily said, we can certainly scaffold in some multisensory strategies, you know, using multimodal tools to help them with those tasks as we're working in segmenting and blending. So for segmenting, right, it just lays that foundation for reading, spelling, and phoneme manipulation. So we're going to want to have students say each sound, right, have them set, pull apart each individual phoneme in the word. You can have them say the word, they can echo the word, segment each individual phoneme, and then put that back together. Yeah. And, you know, I think that as we're choosing these scaffolds, the thing that we want to be mindful of is if you're working with students who are having a hard time with phonological awareness in any way, that we're mindful of their cognitive load. That means, in essence, how many pieces of information are they able to hold and manipulate and give feedback on to you if you're asking them a question, whether it be an oral task or a written task, just how many pieces of information are they able to process in that given moment? For someone with dyslexia, we may be overtaxing them. So just being really, really aware of that is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. And and so, you know, having that specific instruction in that developing 
of those phonemic awareness tasks um, is really needed to help our students bridge their speech, their oral language into print. And so, you know, once our students understand the segmenting and blending skills orally with manipulatives, if that's a scaffold they need, then we can add in those letter representations that have been explicitly taught. Of course, you know, we want to aim to get to that one-to-one -one correspondence as quickly as possible. But again, being really diagnostic and prescriptive with our students is necessary. So beyond, you know, segmenting our sounds or pulling out each individual phoneme or sound in the word, we can move into successive blending. This is where our words are sounded out by adding one phoneme at a time to blend a word. So if I had the word last, we would say l, and then we would move on to the next letter, blend those two together. And then uncover the next grapheme, last, and then moving into the final phoneme of t last, last. Emily and I had a conversation. There are times where you can have this covered and you're uncovering each letter as you progressively do that successive blending. But Emily and I, we both tend to have the student look at the whole word and then we're focusing their attention on each of those sounds as we're doing that successive blending. Yeah. And the reason why I focus on that, on the latter of that strategy with successive blending is because I don't want to ever give the impression that this is a guessing game. Right. That we're guessing an uncovered word. Okay. Absolutely. That we're looking very critically that matching sound to symbol and blending that all together. Okay. Right. And I will say that successive blending really is an early strategy yes. for students who are tending to drop the initial phoneme. Really best for students to work with those short vowel sounds where you are not having a vowel situation like vowel team or mm, right because you're you're really uncovering or focusing on one grapheme at a time. Yeah. So, you know, kind of knowing, again, going back to that knowledge of knowing what scaffolds to use, when and why within our lessons. Great point. I Like, I, for instance, I wouldn't use this with like a word that has an arc and told uh, vowel no. pattern in there. No. Right. Because no. yeah. you're going one, one grapheme right. at a time. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and then we have continuous blending. This is a, definitely a favorite. We know continuous blending is a great strategy to use with our early learners. This is when we have words that are sounded out without stopping between the sounds. So I have my students, this is almost like they're singing it out. The work with Dr. Engelman from the 1970s, direct instruction, focused a lot on continuous blending. Um, it's definitely come back into favor, <laughs> which is great because research has showed even way back then that it was very beneficial to students. But again, it is a scaffold and it has its time and place within our lessons. So for continuous blending, the student looks at the word, right? You have the student identify each phoneme, and then you're going to touch under those phonemes where they don't stop between it. So if it was looking at the word mat, we would do mat, mat, right, without breaking between any of those sounds. This again is really the best, one of the better scaffolds to use at the beginning stages of reading. You might hear it as additive blending or connected phonation as other terminology that people may use with continuous blending, but it is a great strategy to use to help students connect sounds with decoding. 
it can be helpful for students who struggle with holding individual speech sounds in their phonological memory. But within this scaffold, it is recommended that you start with continuous sounds or those sounds that you're able to be stretched out um, until you run out of breath. So like mm, are going to right. be easier to use with, with continuous blending than sounds that have stop sounds like t or d at the beginning. Right. Thank you. That's a very good point to make. Yes. And this, once again, is one of those considered those earlier. Yeah. Geez. Yes, absolutely. And then another scaffold would be body coda work. So body coda blending is more effortless than maybe onset and rhyme work, especially for students that have difficulty linking sounds. So when we speak, right, the vowel is going to be the largest part of our syllable. And so children can often hear that as a more audible part. So when working with body coda blending, the student will read or say the sounds from the beginning of the word to the vowel. And that part is called the body. And then we're going to add the consonants after the vowel, which is called the coda. And so that practice can be especially helpful if you have students that are distorting sounds or may have a really hard time with that phonological mapping or even like some retrieval difficulties. So for that, like if, it, if I was working with the body M-A, ma, and then I could add that to mad, mad, mat, mat, map, map, things like that. Okay. And I think that that's great for kids who have some prior knowledge already. Mm -hmm. of these patterns that was a great that's a great example and that you know when we're using scaffolds then we, we're always trying to build on their prior knowledge whether you know in any area of literacy instruction absolutely yeah and then the last one we're going to talk about for our early learners is backward blending um this is actually the strategy I probably use the most often across my grade levels of students that I work with when I'm doing error correction outside of pulling out, doing the morphology piece, which Emily's going to talk to about here. So, but when we're talking about backward blending, this is, you know, particularly helpful when a student is struggling with a vowel sound production or has a sound omission. So what I'll do is I will cover up the beginning portion of the word up to the vowel. And so then I have the student read from beginning from the vowel sound and read to the end of the word. And then I will uncover each grapheme one at a time that comes before the vowel and we blend as we go. So if my student made an error reading the word crab, I would cover up the C and the R and we would read from ab, rab, crab. So that backward blending is, is one that I tend to use often for those error corrections when my students are having in their, in their either isolated word reading or in sentence word reading, if they make errors and it doesn't, it's not a word that includes a morphine. <laughs> and would you say that that works better when children are omitting certain area, certain letters in certain parts of the word, Casey, yeah. just to clarify. Absolutely. Yeah. I find that that is one um, in particular, like if they are dropping any of those final consonant sounds. Yes. That is a very helpful um, scaffold to use for them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I um just want to just if people are trying to imagine how that looks and and in the times when it's appropriate, I think that yeah that is a great and, um, and I do explanation. Have, I have a blog and also like a PDF handout that has these five scaffolds. 
for Excellent. So we'll make sure to have that for you guys. So Casey has outlined five different of these early scaffolds for decoding difficulties. So once again, we're just want to remind everybody that we are mindful of the child's learning profile, um, what their areas of weakness and strengths are, mm-hmm. and knowing which of these scaffolds will probably be more appropriate than others in certain cases based on progress monitoring and your assessing. And sure, we're asking you to consider a lot of different factors here, but it I think the overall outcome will be much better if we're taking those other things into account. Yeah. All right. Now, when we're getting into older students, older students still are going to benefit from having scaffolds, right? Yeah. Once again, scaffolds are temporary. We're not keeping them there forever. Um, but some of the ones that you may want to be thinking about with your students, and not even just for older students, but once you start crossing the bridge into some maybe two-syllable words, these this is a great time. Don't hold back. You know, Start building in um, things like morphology. So, for instance, once your students even have understandings of, let's say, um, final blends, then there are some great Latin roots that you can start Mm -hmm. teaching them, like rupt and tract, things like that. And you can start building those words with them. And then you can, once you get into two-syllable words, like, you know, instruct, things like that. You can start teaching them how to pull off the meaningful parts of the morphemes before we even get into that. Even just practicing with early morphology, I always start with just compounds, just compound words, pulling off the the two meaningful parts. Those are just like with cupcake, cup and cake. And then simple suffixes, but being able to really look critically at those words and being able to identify them, maybe like underlining the base, circling or boxing the simple suffixes and prefixes, those are going to be great scaffolds so that they're looking at those meaningful parts. They're thinking, but not only are they looking at them, but that they understand the meanings of them. So if I'm going to see tract, then I can you know, underline that. And I know that's going to mean to pull, right? Yeah. And Emily, um, I love that you brought that up about, you know, beginning with that understanding, bringing in morphology, even in early grades, you can do that with those compound words. And I teach suffix S in kindergarten, like right. my students circling or boxing that suffix and pulling that off. So I love that you brought up that morphology piece, because I think sometimes people think it's only for older students, but right. really we are laying those early foundation components in our younger grades as well. Right. Absolutely. I mean, even when I've been teaching lessons lately, maybe with, for instance, like you know, like the kind, wild, old ghost words, right? And you can do words like unkind or wildlife, wildfire. Uh, So there's so many, there's really wonderful opportunities for not only building in those decoding scaffolds, but also building language. Casey and I talk a lot about (laughs) language development, don't we? So we just want to keep, be mindful of that. All right. Um, our Orton-Gillingham lesson is not just about phonics. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but also with other scaffolds, we want to be looking at special situations. So when we see 
uh, we're paying attention to particular orthographic features, like calling attention to consonant digraphs, um, vowel teams, our controlled vowel patterns, things like that. Um, looking to uh, using simple syllable division with scooping the syllables. So we talked about that earlier in the episode, about how we do have children code words. And we're doing that because marking them is the scaffold. Are we always having them mark the words? No, for goodness sake, no. Please don't do that forever. You don't need to. But it is calling attention, making them aware that words have particular orthographic features They and they're developing those sound symbol relationships even more in depth, especially when you get into vowel teams and helping them divide, scoop those syllables, reading mm -hmm. them. And then children will be able to cross into when they look at a word, they're making sort of like that mental image of that division in their mind as they look at that word. And at first, I'll be perfectly honest, you may have to give them a verbal prompt. Think, okay, right. so try to imagine where that line of division is. And can you tell me what that will be? And it's, it may appear rather slow at first, but kids, mm -hmm. it's so interesting to watch the progression as they build up um, more accuracy and just more flow in being able to pick up those words with more than one syllable. And, but it does, uh, it's, it's a gradual release. It's starting with that scaffold and then just you know, slowly building up so that once they see the word in context, maybe in a decodable or in a, in a book that's not controlled, then they're able to do it on their own. And that is getting towards mastery, my friend, right? Isn't that the ultimate goal? It really yes. is. And, and yeah. I love it when I tell my older students and, and I do this when I train teachers as well, I'll put up like a very long multisyllabic word, one that they haven't encountered <laughs> yeah. before. And I'm like, how would you read this? What are you doing to help you understand it? And, and they say all those same things. Oh, I pull off, you know, these, these meaningful parts, or I, I recognize this part of the word and then I'm looking at the syllables. Yeah. And that is what our students need that explicit instruction in. So. All right. Katie, this is so, oh my gosh, such a nerd <laughs> thinking like this, but like I, once we get into really the study of morphemes, you can't, well, I always say this to people, like, you can't unsee it. So right. for instance, <laughs> when I think about like, I, um, all right, this is kind of silly, but I was I was in Disney World with my kids and, and we had to be evacuated off of the Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay, we had to like literally get out of the boat and <laughs> and be evacuated to a special exit. And it was it was really cool, by the way, <laughs> to be evacuated. But in my mind, I'm such a I am such a nerd for saying this, but I in my mind I was thinking of the word evacuate. I'm like, okay, well, eight means it's a verb because that's a verb suffix. And then like pulling out the meaningful morphemes in my mind, like like I'm like. Emily, why are you doing this right now? Like we're in the we're we're getting off of the boat. You have your four kids with you. You're going towards an exit. And here I am, like breaking a word down by morpheme in my mind. Like this is ridiculous. But that's what I that's what I was thinking. Like I can't, I, you cannot unsee it once you start like study the study of morphology, which is really it's cool, it's fun, I'm total word nerd, but just had to throw that out there. All I right. Yeah. So anyway, and that's what we want for our kids, I guess, eventually to be able to have and own those strategies. And that is just going to strengthen their vocabulary. It's going to strengthen their reading comprehension. So don't we want them all to be 
sort of thinking critically like that about words and being curious about words. I think so. Yeah. All right. I love that you went over those strategies for older students. And we actually have an episode in season two, all about word attack strategies for older students. So if yeah. you work with older students or you want to kind of look at some additional scaffolding to help students who are older with some word attack strategies, there's a whole episode dedicated. To yes, that. that was episode 2.5. So if you're yeah. thinking of more strategies for word, for word attack with older students, definitely check that out. Yeah. All right, everyone. So just... Once again, what is to be remembered from this episode? Scaffolds are designed to be temporary, right? Uh, diagnostic and prescriptive teaching is an approach and it's in a never ending cycle, right? We're progress monitoring. We're using our diagnostic and prescriptive approach to teaching to help us close the reading gap, push forward, but also help our children reach mastery. It is a crucial, plays a crucial role in dyslexia education and yeah. with our science of learning. We had an episode on the science of learning too, by the way, mm -hmm. and it helps our students just really uh, build their understanding and we're going to really see greater application when we give them these tools, these scaffolds. And I want to think on that and really just say it really actually empowers them and it really helps to build their metacognition and their critical thinking, which is so necessary. Absolutely. So as we close today, we just want to remind you that you can find um, our show notes and our blog post that goes with these episodes on mm -hmm. the togetherinliteracy.com uh, website. And don't forget, of course, to leave us a rating and some feedback. If you're enjoying these episodes, share. We always love that as well. Uh, we would like to close by uh, sharing our stores. So as Casey, and, as you may or may not know, Casey and I not only share this podcast, but we both have our own websites and, and stores. And we so appreciate the support of all of you when you do perhaps make a purchase, right? We are both not only educators, but small business owners. And we know that we just really appreciate the support. So Casey store, Casey, take it away. Okay. Yeah. You can find me at the dyslexiaclassroom.com. Um, I have a shop there on, at, on my own website, as well as on teacher pay teacher under the same name, the dyslexia classroom. Um, and I also have um, a membership that is all about empowering you beyond the program. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more about how to really scaffold and be diagnostic and prescriptive, that may be something for you to check out. Excellent. And of course, I am the literacynest.com. You can find my shop on my website as well as uh, the memberships that I offer on there too. And I also have a store on Teachers Pay Teachers. It's Emily Gibbons, The Literacy Nest. And so thank you so much for listening today. We look forward to joining you next time for episode eight. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website www.togetherinliteracy.com 
for show notes, downloads, and goodies. Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.